Well, we're continuing our uh, teaching series on the Beatitudes. We're going through the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount, kind of slowly but surely. Uh, today, we're uh, we talk about this everlasting God. And our text today, very simple, kind of pushing two verses together, uh, from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And it says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So that's the text today. Uh, a number of years ago, you know, sometimes after church, I'd always stand out in the lobby of different churches and where I was pastoring, and people would come up, and they'd always have some interesting questions to ask. Uh, like, you know, everything from, did I catch you right that you can't do any, enough good works to get to heaven? I go, well, yeah, I guess you were listening. Uh, so there are all kinds of interesting questions. But a number of years ago, somebody uh, came up and said, isn't Christianity just a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? Yes. It, my answer was pretty simple. I said, yeah, <laughs> period. Uh, but I, I so I'm going to ask you a question in return. And my question in return is, why is the thought that Christianity is a crutch considered to be a valid criticism of Christianity? I don't understand. After all, most people don't look upon a crutch and say, oh, a crutch is bad. Uh, so why does a crutch become a bad thing uh, when it's Christianity? Now, I think the answer critics would give us, and there's certainly a number of critics, and critics keep rising up around us. It's getting kind of even worse day by day in our country, around the world. But the criticism, if Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for cripples. Well, who do we all have here today? A bunch of cripples. cripples. Now, we don't like, let's be honest, we don't like to see ourselves as cripples. So it's kind of offensive to our our general self-sufficiency to label Christianity as a crutch. But in Matthew chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call what? Sick people, sinners, sinners. In other words, the only people uh, who who will ever come to get to know what Jesus has to give are sick people. Now, I don't know if you thought about that today. While I have a doctorate, it's kind of like everybody came to see the doctor today uh, to find the prescription for their life. But the words of healing, the words of health and hope and wholeness. And yet there's a religion that has permeated our society ever since Adam and Eve walked out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, They kind of fell in love with the image of their own independent potential when they heard heard the serpent say something. I don't know if you remember what the serpent said to them. He said, you will not die. Remember how it goes on? You will be like God. And we became cripples. So now we see the creed behind the criticism of Christianity as a crutch. Uh, the real infirmity of the world is a kind of a lack of self-reliance. And uh, then along comes Jesus. And Jesus becomes a stumbling block because he takes away our helplessness, and instead of curing it, he uses our helplessness and turns it into a doorway into heaven. So today we're going to look at this Bible verse that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But, you know, like any Bible passage, we need to ask, well, Martin Luther wrote this, what does this mean? 
what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, to find out, I'm going to give you an example of three men from the Bible that I would say were poor in spirit. The first one I'm going to talk about is Abraham. And when Abraham was dealing with the Lord over the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, listen to what he says here in Genesis 18:27. He says, Behold, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. He acknowledged that he was a broken person. Who am I in the presence of God? Or if you think about Jacob, who, uh, when he returned to the promised land after being gone for about 20 years in exile, uh, there's that story where he wrestles with the Lord at the river Jabbok, I think if I remember correctly. And in Genesis 32.10, this is what he writes, what he said, I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have come with two companies of people. He acknowledged his brokenness. One more, Moses. When God came to Moses, and imagine this. If God were to show up to you, you're out in the backyard and suddenly a bush starts burning. And the voice of God comes out of it and tells you, oh, go set my people free. Uh, and that's what happens is God comes to Moses, sends him out on a mission to lead the people uh, out, uh, lead the people back to Israel. And, and this is what he says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, and also chapter 4, verse 10. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Then he goes on, he says, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either heretofore or since thou hast spoken to thy servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Every time I read that, I think he's saying, I'm slow of speech and I'm not eloquent. I'm listening to this guy talk. Well, maybe he started. I'm not sure. We don't have that recording anywhere. But the reason that God gets pretty angry at, Mo, at Moses when he, when he does that, and it was not because of his humble assessment of his own uh, abilities, but his utter lack in God's abilities. Could we go around the room and everybody talk about what you're not very good at? Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't do that. But see, it's not about what we can do. It's about what, what God can do and what God can do with us and through us and to us, which is kind of a, a really an interesting thing. Um, yeah, who made your mouth? <laughs> That's what he says. Who makes him dumb? Who makes him deaf? Who makes him blind? Isn't not me. That's what God says. So now go. I'll be your mouth. I'll break your words. I'll be in you. Don't worry. So when you're paralyzed with kind of this guilt of, uh, let's say, unworthiness, um, what's the biblical solution to that? You know, I've heard this over the years. You know, Pastor, I'd really like to be involved in this, but, you know, I'm really not worthy. I mean, I've talked to people about asking them to be an elder or to have another position. Well, you know, I, I'm, you, you don't know me. And part of my initial reaction is, yeah, I know who you are. You're a poor, blind, dumb sinner. Exactly like your pastor. Sometimes we get paralyzed by our guilt. Sometimes we get paralyzed by unworthiness. And I believe with all my heart that the solution is not self-esteem. That doesn't do with self-esteem. God didn't say to Moses, oh, come on, Mo, uh, stop putting yourself down. Because uh, you are somebody. Uh, you're eloquent. Uh, that's not... 
the biblical way. What God did say to Moses, which is what he would say to all of us when we kind of put ourselves down, is stop looking at your own unworthiness. Stop looking at your uselessness and instead start looking at me. Don't look at yourself. Look at me. Uh, I uh, I made your mouth. Uh, I'll be with you. I'll help you. I'll, I will teach you what to say. In other words, look to me and live. Life is different. And you take your eyes off yourself and you look to the Lord. I hate to tell you how many times I've ever thought before a church service, Lord, who am I that I should be doing this? Any of you that teach, Jeff knows probably the same thing. Who am I that God would use me? Becky, how, how, why would God choose her to do this? And we can come up with any kind of excuse about why we can't do it. Why would God call you to lead women's ministries? Because he knew you could do it. Because he would put his words in your mouth, your mouth, your mouth, everybody's mouth. He'll take care of you. Look to me and live. So the answer to low self-esteem is not high self-esteem. It's just really sovereign grace. Uh, you can test whether you agree with this by whether or not you could gladly repeat the words of Isaiah 41:14. Listen to these words. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob. <laughs> I will help you, says the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> now, we could have plugged our own name in there. Don't worry about it, you worm. <laughs> yeah, I don't like that myself. <laughs> in other words, God's way of freeing and mobilizing people uh, who see themselves as worms is not to tell them that they're beautiful butterflies, uh, but rather, God saying, look, I'm going to help you, says the Lord. I'm the Redeemer. I'm the Holy One of Israel. I can work through you. I always take great delight in knowing that, uh, you know, being a pastor, I kind of worry sometimes about what I'm going to say or how I'm going to say it. But then I remember, if God could speak through a donkey, he can probably speak through me. <laughs> and if you don't know that story, go back and read about Balaam and all that kind of stuff. Um, so in other words, God, God has a way of freeing and mobilizing people. I'll help you. I'll be the one that leads you. Uh, some of you know, uh, Nancy and I have been to India, I think on three different occasions. I've been involved with Christ for India. Currently, I'm still the vice president of, um, Christ for India. We have a large campus in Vishakhapatnam, India. We have, uh, a large grade school, over 600 students, and we've got a Bible college and a seminary and even a hospital there. And we've been supporters of them for a long time. But it was on one of my first trips that I was um, brought to mind a man by the name of William Carey. It was the first time I'd ever heard about William Carey. He was really one of the first missionaries to India, one of the great missionaries. Now, I'm not discounting the fact that we think that the disciple Thomas was martyred in India. But William Carey is a great missionary to India. And when he had outlived four of his mission partners that he went with, he wrote this to a friend. I know not why so fruitless a tree is preserved, but the Lord is too wise to err. Now, he died in 1834 um, in India, and they put a simple tablet on his grave and um, Anthony's got that, you may be able to see that, that's very blurry, but I, I hunted that up, and that's, that's his gravestone. Um, 
And um, I'm going to read to you what it actually says here in a little bit. Well, he, he put the words there. But when you hear these words, I want you to ask, how could he persevere for 40 years? He was a homely man who actually buried three wives. He suffered from a recurrent fever. He limped for years from an injury that he suffered in 1817. Yet he put the entire Bible into six languages and parts of it in 29 other languages. What was the secret of this man's usefulness and productivity in the kingdom? Well, here's exactly what it says on his tombstone. William Carey, born August 17, 1761, died June 9, 1834, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. His secret was not self-esteem. His secret in dying was his secret in living. Uh, he threw himself, like he says, a poor, helpless, despicable person, totally out on the arms of God. See, he knew the promise of Jesus, uh, which we've talked about already, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, they, for to them belong the merciful and mighty arms of the King of Kings. Now, my prayer, I pray this regularly, not these exact same words, but I, I, my constant prayer is that all of us that restore um, would find the secret of productivity and usefulness and happiness not in the pleasures of self-esteem. It has nothing to do with a pat on the back, although those are really nice to have, but simply on his sovereign grace. What we've done at Restore in nearly two years is admirable. We've made a minor little dent in our community. We'd like to make a bigger dent. We'd like to break through some big walls. I know. But it's going to come because of God's sovereign grace as he pushes us forward. I'm going to give you some examples. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, verse 5, Isaiah, it says, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He knew where he came from. He was not, perhaps, an eloquent speaker, but he knew God was with him. Or if you remember the Roman centurion, this is in Luke 7, verses 6 to 9, when Jesus was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude, I tell you, not ever in Israel have I found such faith. So we learn that the poverty of the spirit is at the very heart of what true faith is. But we might ask ourselves, what is this poverty of spirit? Well, in a sense, it's powerlessness. Now, we lost power at the building today, but I'm going to tell you that we got power here. But it's recognizing our powerlessness, kind of a spiritual bankruptcy. We are not, this is going to sound terrible, we are not the cream of the crop other than in God's eyes. Does that sound too strange? Maybe you can disagree with me. We're, what do we got here today? 17, 18 people? 20. How many? <laughs> Twenty. <laughs> Mr. Nichols knows us. <laughs> Twenty. Good. You realize the power that's in this room? Yeah. To impact and affect people's lives? 
It may not always be in the building. It might actually be in the house of the pastor and his wife. It might be sitting at a coffee shop someplace. It might be in the ER room, huh, Mike? (laughs) Yeah, it might be at uh, PostNet, Anthony, who makes sure he has around advertising our church all over the place. Maybe as you're out in the community. The poverty of spirit and spirit. In a sense, it's just a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God is that moral uncleanness and personal unworthiness to be in front of him. Now, it's a sense in which if there's going to be any joy in life, and I pray we all have joy in life, I pray that we all be useful, but it's always going to be dependent upon the grace of God. I love that word, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what we got. Everything we have, as the people have restored, is because God gave it to us. Now, the reason I say that it is a sense of powerlessness and bankruptcy and a sense of uncleanness and unworthiness is that, objectively speaking, everybody here today is poor in spirit. Everybody, whether they sense it or not, is a powerless person without God, bankrupt, helpless, unclean, unworthy. But not everybody is blessed. So who's blessed in this verse? When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he doesn't mean everybody. He means only those people who actually feel that. Think about that. To be poor in spirit. That's why it's so appropriate to take the first and the second Beatitudes here together. Blessed are those who mourn clarifies those people who are poor in spirit. But then it says, blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn. Blessed are the people who feel their inadequacies, who feel their sense of guilt, their failures, their helplessness, their unworthiness, their emptiness, but don't try to hide these things under self-sufficiency, but who are honest with them, who are willing to pray prayers of brokenness. They're grieved, and as a result, are driven to the foot of the cross for the grace of God. So my word to you today, other than thank you for coming to our house and taking the effort to be here with God's people, is blessed are you. Blessed are you. This is what Jesus, I think, would be saying to us this group of disciples, if we were sitting at the foot of the mount today, too, we're sitting in Restore, where we're sitting in our house. I will be with you. Don't worry about it. I will help you. I will make you strong. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. And guess what, friends? You are the very kingdom of God in this place and wherever you go. Well, we're going to see some words on the screen have to do with the Apostles' Creed. Um, this is who we believe in, and it also talks about why we believe it. Um, if you um, happen to be a Facebook friend of mine, or you, you look at the church's web or the our uh, Restore Facebook page, I put something on there today, which is where did the Apostles' Creed come from? And I said it's from the Bible, and it's, it's taken the entire creed and broken down with all the Bible passages to show exactly how true that is. You may want to take a look at that later. But let's join together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 